Our scripture focus for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the shame as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover, let her, cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was, it, was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given for her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The Word of God. Jason, family, you can go ahead and take a seat, please. And let's uh, begin with a word of prayer before we get down to work this morning. Maybe. There we go. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for adopting us into your family. We, every one of us, uh, we know it deep down. We have rebel hearts. Um, Our first parents rebelled, and we suffered the consequences of their rebellion um, but we are not without excuse. We're just like them. We, we, we rebelled too. Um, we ran far from you and ran hard and fast, and you would have been just to judge us uh, forever. Uh, but you sent Jesus after us, not as a judge, but as a rescuing king. And Jesus, we thank you that you submitted to the will of the Father. You did the work necessary to accomplish our rescue And now by faith in you, we are adopted into the family and we receive mercy as sons and daughters instead of judgment as rebels. And so we thank you. Spirit, we thank you for awakening our hearts and giving us the faith to believe. Thank you for sustaining our faith and for keeping us in the family. We don't even keep our, our faith is so weak, we don't even keep ourselves in the family, but you, you keep us. Uh, You are our Father's commitment to us that you will never let us go, and we thank you. Father, we're going to deal with a tough passage this morning. I pray that you'd give us humility and give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, your word for us this morning so that we would be increasingly formed uh, by the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, good morning again, everybody. Our series theme is Gospel Formed. We're back in 1 Corinthians, took a little break for Advent. Dave got us back into it last week, 1 Corinthians. Uh, And here we go, Gospel Formed. Our series is all about becoming who we are 
a united family in a fractured city. And this morning, here's what we're going to see from the passage that was just read for us. We become who we are, a united family in a fractured city, when in glad submission to Jesus' authority, we neither obscure nor overemphasize gender differences in our public worship gatherings. Uh, now, as you might know, 1 Corinthians, we talked about this throughout the series, 1 Corinthians was written to a young church family, all brand new Christians. Their parents hadn't been Christians, right? So they'd been discipled by the culture. They'd been discipled by, they'd learned uh, through the worship of pagan deities, and now God has rocked their world, and they're learning what it means to be God's sons and daughters and followers of Jesus. They're learning, but it's a mess. I mean, it's, it's a Corinth, the city's a mess the church is a mess. Like, you can just imagine, we're a mess. Like, they're a mess. But they, like, man, you, you've seen the letter. They were what we would call a dumpster fire. Like, it was, it, was, it was bad. I did a little research this week for some, like, graphic imagery, and I actually found an archived page from their church's, uh, like, profile page or website. And this was their profile picture, like, straight-up dumpster fire, right? That's not too soon, right? Okay. That's extreme, and that, invo- like, that prompts a lot of just crazy feelings and unsettledness in us. Uh, I use that because that's how messy it was. Like that's how it was, it was a mess. I mean, it really was a dumpster fire. So Paul writes them this letter and through this letter, Paul was just patiently, patiently, patiently helping them apply the gospel to all of life so that they could become who they were. And guys, that's what it means to be a Christian. We're a mess. Our church family's a mess. We need lots of grace and we show lots of grace to each other. We have to It's a lifelong learning process to unlearn all of our rebel ways, to unlearn all the worship that we give to everyone and everything other than the God who created us. It's a mess. So if your life is a mess and you're just learning how to follow Jesus and you fail more than you succeed, you got a home right here. Like These are your people because that's who we are. In this portion of the letter, Paul addresses what appears to be a collective disregard for some customary distinctions between men and women. In some ways, these God-designed and good distinctions were being obscured in their public worship gatherings, while in other ways they were being overemphasized, like these gender distinctions were being overemphasized. So at best, their disregard was a distraction, really distracting from the gospel and from the focus that should have been on Jesus, a distraction. At worst, their disregard was dishonoring God dishonoring each other, and even dishonoring some commonly held cultural values. So left unchecked, this disregard would contribute to division within the family. We already know they were a divided family. Paul's trying to do the work to unite them around the gospel, around Jesus again. And worse, this continued posture would likely discourage non-Christians from viewing the gospel or Christians with any credibility whatsoever. Now, fair warning, you heard the passage read, yeah? Tough passage? Yeah, no, no, some of you are shaking your head no. I'll tell you what, you can have my notes and you come up here and uh, you, can, you can preach. A tough passage, tough passage. Uh, a couple different, uh, I just gathered a couple comments this week about this. This is Craig, Craig Blomberg, he's a theologian and commentator. He goes, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament, right? Good times. Uh, Gordon Fee says, this passage is full of notorious difficulties, including the logic of the argument as a whole, which in turn is related to our uncertainty about the meaning of some absolutely crucial terms. We'll see that. 
and our uncertainty about prevailing customs, things we don't know about their culture, both in the culture in general and in the church in particular. And what we're going to see in the letter is Paul's response to them assumes understanding between them and him at several key points. In other words, what I mean is they had written to Paul and they'd sent a messenger and they had a bunch of questions. And so when Paul's letter back, he's answering their questions. So it's awfully helpful if we have both the questions and the answers. In this chapter, we don't have the questions. We only have the answers. So we do our best to reconstruct what they were asking and why they were asking it. And we do our best to research some customs so we kind of have a sense of what he's talking about. But it's messy. It's messy. So two crucial questions, what was going on and why it was going on, are really hard for us to to, to kind of reconstruct together. But we're going to do the work. Uh, David Garland said this, uh, I like this quote, I appreciate it. He said, the complexity of this passage continues to vex. That's a good word. Uh, Maybe some of you are already vexed just because of what we read, and I haven't even really started talking about it yet. It's all right. Uh, To vex modern interpreters and its comments about women rile many modern readers because it contains one of the lengthiest discussions in the New Testament on the relationship between men and women. It has attracted the attention of, of many and the indignation of some. Yeah, he's right. He's absolutely right. So sounds like a good time this morning, yeah? Are you ready? I mean, it is 21, 2021. So what, I mean, what an appropriate type of sermon, right? Just fitting in the type of year that it's already been. Might as well be, you know, my first sermon of the year is to go, to go here. Now, before we really dive in, uh, I want to share with you a few thoughts, um, kind of rules of Bible study for any passage but they become especially important for difficult passages like this one, okay? So just, just a few thoughts. First of all is community. Don't ever interpret the Bible in isolation. God has given us a family so we can interpret together, we can understand together, we can apply together, so we do it with our church family. But we also read widely. Right? The gospel's been around for 2,000 plus years. Uh, countless scholars have wrestled with passages like this and written broadly. So there's consensus, growing consensus over 2,000 years that we should benefit from. You should read people you know you're going to disagree with. Like, read broadly. Do it in community. And here's the rule. In community, if you find yourself alone in your understanding of a passage or in your interpretation of it or your application of it, it's safe to assume you're wrong after 2,000 years of consensus. If you're coming up with a new idea, uh, it's probably not right, right? Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. So if people have been rocking study for 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden a, a pastor or podcaster or preacher, author says, man, I got a, a new discovery that nobody's ever seen in the text before, you can just turn it off because like, no, he doesn't. Like it's not there. Like it's, it's been seen, okay? So if you come up with new or different, you're probably wrong. Okay, community is really important. Another rule is context is king. In other words, there's a grammatical context. We've got to consider words and how they were used then. There's a historical context, a social context, and a political context. And if we disregard any of those, we're probably going to end up with an application that was not even understood or implied by the original author or his audience. So we've got to be careful with our study. And then when it comes to meaning, uh, the meaning of that passage is really challenging, right? You read it, I read it and read it and read it and read it, like, man, I, I don't know, it's hard. But the bottom line is every passage of Scripture has a meaning. It's got one. It was clear to the author and the original audience, and so when the meaning of a passage is plain and obvious, 
We roll with it. We don't try to find a secret meaning or a hidden meaning. We receive it and we just, we roll with it. Now, when it's complicated and complex like today, we're not free to make our own meaning of the text. There's a, a, a phrase that's really popular nowadays called meaning making. Have you heard that or read a book about it? Meaning making. Um, we don't make meaning in the Bible. We discover meaning. It's already there. It's not ours to make. So when it's complicated or complex like, like it is today, we do our best to discover. But when we discover what we think is the meaning, we hold our conclusions with humility and with an open hand. Because I could be wrong. Or I may learn something three years from now that just really changes my mind about something, right? So humble posture, open hand. Uh, singular meaning, like I said, every passage has one meaning, but it has many applications. One meaning, many applications. And here's a really important idea. Application differs in different times and generations and in different cities and in different cultures, right? That's especially true today in the passage we're going to see. And so what we do then is when we study, we look for timeless principles that don't change. And we try to identify like the cultural expressions or applications of those timeless principles so that we understand them. And we, so, so those timeless principles come forward into our generation and our culture, but they're going to be expressed differently. So the, the meaning never changes. The principle never changes. It, has, it rules over us. But the way that they're expressed in our culture is going to be different. Let me give you an example because you think, oh, John, that's, that can't be right. But here's an example. You've heard the command in Scripture to greet one another How? Are you disobeying Jesus right now? When's the last time you obeyed that Bible verse? Never. Try rolling up on somebody's husband or wife in here and obey Jesus. That like see how that goes. Why? That's not. It's not a a cultural expression for us like it was for them. How would we express? I would walk up to somebody. This is breaking all the Rona rules. Right? There's my holy kiss on on a dude. Right? Like we're expressing it differently. But what's the timeless principle behind the greeting? that we enthusiastically love, that we initiate, that we pull people in, that we don't exclude, that we show affection, that men show physical affection appropriately, right? Lots of timeless principles there, but you better believe the application can train. Try greeting some. We greet, we greet each other with a right hand, right, outside of Rona rules. Go into other parts of the world and try to greet somebody with the right hand there. Profound insult, right? So application changes across time and culture, meaning through the timeless principles, never changes. Another rule, the Bible is its own best interpreter. So we need to allow clear passages to bring clarity to complicated passages that we're going to deal with like today. Now today, we're going to stay in our passage. I'm not going to other passages. But over the next few weeks, we'll gain some clarity. And over the course of our time together this morning, I will, I will reference, even though we won't go there, principles that we know clearly from other plain passages that help us understand pieces of this one that might be confusing, okay? So when we're unsure, we got to go to plain teaching in Scripture to help us understand the confusing, uh, confusing passages. And finally, I just want to say again about humility. Guys, we just got to be humble in all of this, especially with a view on challenging passages or matters of secondary importance. And to be clear, today is a matter of secondary importance. And you may arrive at different conclusions than I present to you, and that's okay. It's perfectly okay. In fact, I had lunch with a member of our church family earlier this week. He, uh, he asked me, 
um, John, are you, are you speaking this week? I didn't speak last week. I said, yeah. We started talking about the passage this past year. And he said, hey, the church that I come from practices this passage in this way. You've already read it. So the head covering thing, like if a woman were to get up and pray and prophesy, she would put a head covering on and then she would take it off when she was done and, and sit down. And then he's like, hey, I can give you the podcast. My, my pastor preached like a 90 minute talk on this thing. I'm like, sure, send it. And I listened to it this week. Phenomenal communicator, sounds like an outstanding pastor, loves Jesus, knows the word. Goodness, he knew the word. But I disagree with him a little bit in his application. But that's okay. I'd still be his friend. I'm still his brother. And we wouldn't separate over a secondary thing like that. So I respect him. And so much so, like I'm not afraid of the differences. So I will gladly send his teaching to any of you so you can listen to it and do your own work and compare it with what I'm going to tell you today. And if you agree with him and disagree with me, that's fine. That's totally fine. No problem. So it's secondary. We're not unpacking the nature of the gospel. We're not unpacking the deity of Jesus. We're going to talk about head coverings. And it matters, right? We chuckle, but it matters. It's really important more than we know, but it's still secondary. It's not the same level as the gospel. I I just want to finally say this before we dig in. Tough passage. I did the work that I could in the amount of time that I had to do it this week. I wish I had more time. Uh, You'll see that as I go through some of this. But but I am confident that the conclusions I'm going to give you are, like I feel confident in my conclusions. But I do want you to know, again, I present them to you humbly and with, a, with an open hand. I, I could be wrong in some things. You may see things differently, and that's okay. And I may change my mind in three years. Who knows, right? So I present it confidently, but with humility and an open hand. All right, let's get to work. Uh, like we said, context is king. So before we deep dive on head coverings and jump to application, we can do ourselves a favor to get the, kind of get a sense of our passage by zooming out and understanding where we're at in the letter. And what we see when we zoom out is that the section we're in has to do specifically with public worship gatherings on Sunday morning. So this right here, this is what Paul's talking about. When the family gathers to worship Jesus in public on a Sunday morning. In fact, from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 14, that's what he's talking about, public worship gatherings. We went out of order a little bit. Last week, Dave talked about the peace in the middle, like the importance of communion and how to practice it, why to practice it, did a fantastic job, okay? Now we're bouncing back to the head coverings piece, and then next week, we'll we'll, we'll get into the later stuff that's going to talk about um, the reality that when you became a Christian, God gave you a gift, and the gift is for his fame and for the good of other people. And your gift needs to be exercised when we come together like this. But you can imagine in a crowd this size, if we all just try to exercise our gifts at the same time in any way we want to, it would be chaos. So he talks about using our gifts in a loving way for the good of others, not for my own adulation. And he talks about the order, just the way in which we should do it so that like if a new person, a non-Christian came in here and saw us doing what we're doing, they wouldn't conclude these people really, like Christians really are whack, like people are right, right? They would walk away, maybe even still disagreeing with what we believe, but not thinking we're crazy and just out of our minds, right? So that'll be next week. The reason I want to bring this up, though, is this is very important. We're talking about only our public worship gatherings, and even more specifically within our worship gatherings. Paul is talking specifically about putting a head covering or a woman putting a head covering on her head when she's in the spotlight or what we would say on the stage or maybe more specifically for our context behind a microphone, when she's behind a microphone, leading us in prayer, 
reading scripture or prophesying. And we're not going to unpack prophesying a whole lot today. It'll come in, in next week and in, in future weeks. For now, working definition, a prophecy would be a word given by God to a person on behalf of his family for their good and for their fame. Okay, so we'll just kind of use that as our working def- definition today, but we'll, we'll unpack that in the weeks to come. So when a, here, this is what the portion's talking about. When a woman is in the spotlight because she's leading in prayer or prophesying, um, this idea of a head covering, whatever's going on needs to take place. So I just want you to take a deep breath and exhale. This passage is not talking about women wearing head coverings 24-7. It's not suggesting that a woman needs to have a head covering on to attend, to be in a worship gathering. Uh, That's not what it's talking about. Now, you can if you want. You can disagree with me, and you can see things differently, and you're more than welcome to wear a head covering, and I would respect that. Anyway, we're in the perfect season for you to make that, for for you to kind of come to that conclusion and make that your conviction anyway, because we all have a ready-made head covering. You just have to kind of rotate and change the angle of how it's resting on your head. Like, no extra work required. You already got it, right? But that's not what this passage teaches. And honestly, though head coverings feature prominently, like you've already heard it, we read it, um, this passage about head coverings isn't really about head coverings after all. You're going to see that. So what's this passage about and and what does it teach? Uh, Let's do that work together so we can find out. So Paul begins with some praise, right? Verse 2, we saw it. It begins with some praise, which is rare for this letter. Remember, they're a dumpster fire. He does not have a lot to commend in the life of the church, but here he goes. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So again, not a lot of commendation in this letter, but here's one. And Paul writes, he says, hey fam, good job. Your public worship gatherings, they're good. You're remembering the tradition I gave you. Um, you're, you're rehearsing the gospel. Jesus is the focal point. You're doing things well, you remember what I taught you, and you're working to maintain the traditions I gave you. Good job. I'm proud of you. Verse 3, I'm proud of you, but, right? So a word of correction, a word of clarity. And let's just pause and say, um, we need to see in that what is true for us in all of life. Um, As a church family, there's so much that's commendable, but each of the commendations could be followed with a comma, but, or a comma, and. Like, keep pressing. Keep leaning into Jesus. Keep growing. Keep changing. Keep acknowledging the mess. We're never perfect in this lifetime, okay? So this kind of reminds us of the the importance of having a humble posture. Even when there's commendation given, uh, tomorrow there will be a comma, but. There's there's always going to be a comma, but so a humble posture. Uh, so he says this, I want you to understand something. So you're doing well, but I want to give some correction. I need to give some clarity. And here's the first timeless principle that we're going to see. And then we'll start seeing some uh, cultural application. And here it is, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife, some of your translations may read the head of a woman. That's the same word in Greek, gune. And normally it's the context that determines whether it's woman or wife. So most scholars believe it should be understood as wife right here. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So the first word that we need to kind of make sure we're on the same page with is this word head. You could understand this word head in three different ways. You could understand it as a a position of preeminence or first position, something that comes first and takes priority. You could. It's not common to, to understand it that way. 
You could understand it as a source of something, like the head of a river, which would fit fairly well with this passage. Some people do believe that's accurate, and that's it's valid. Um, what a lot of people understand it to mean, what I take it to mean, uh, through, based upon its usage through all of Scripture, has more to do with authority, um, head as authority. So Paul is talking about authority here, as I understand it. So Paul, what we need to understand, though, is Paul's not establishing a hierarchy here. It's not what he's doing. And we love chains of command. Your world has everything to do with a chain of command. This is not a chain of command. In fact, if it was a chain of command, Jesus would be listed first, right? And if it were a chain of command, like a gospel-shaped chain of command, you can't list the dude before the, before the wife anyway, because no woman goes through a man to get to Jesus. That's absurd, right? That's, that's, that's not a Christian teaching. And so if you've ever heard that in a Christian circle, just understand that's, that's not gospel at all, right? No, you don't go through your husband to get to Jesus. You don't go through a man to get to Jesus. So it's not a chain of command. It's not a chain of command. Um, and it's not about subordination of women. Now, you're probably skeptical about that. You've heard the passage read. I've only started to explain it, and you're on, on edge a little bit. You feel like our 21st century years make it feel like it's about the subordination of women. But hang in there because it will become increasingly clear as we work through the passage that that's not what it's about. Also, I want to say this. Single dudes, if you just read through that with me, single dudes, you are not the head of any woman. You cannot invoke this in your dating relationship or any other relationship, just because you're a man does not give you any inherent sense of authority over any other image bearer. That's, that's also absurd. You are not the head of any woman who is in this room or in this world. I need to say that for the record. And single ladies, you don't need me to say this, but I'm a dad, I'm a, uh, a dad of a daughter, so I'm going to say it anyway. If a dude rocks that posture with you or says that to you, you already know how to just turn around and walk away and find a different or new relationship like that, that would be an absurd thing to invoke, especially if he tries to anchor it to scripture like he's some much spiritually mature dude. That's manipulation and control, okay? That's not gospel. Okay, what's Paul doing here? Spending all the time on what he's not doing. Paul is reminding these brand new Christians, he's teaching them, brand new Christians, that by God's design, every one of us has authority over us and it's for our good and for his fame. The way he does that is he shows us that Jesus himself, as God himself, son of God, Jesus willfully and joyfully expresses submission to the Father and to the Father's will. He says in this passage, ladies, you're called to express submission to the uh, authority or position of leadership that your husband has been granted by God through creation. And you're like, John, I don't know how clear that is in that passage. That's okay. Remember, for complicated or difficult passages, we go to clear passages for clarity. So we could go to Ephesians 5, where that idea is taught very clearly that uh, a wife is called to submit to her husband as an expression of her submission to Jesus, okay? And then dudes, Paul says, you are to submit to Christ. Now, obviously, ladies, you're all submitting to Jesus too, but that's, that's not the direction that Paul's going. He's trying to make a different point that every one of us, whether we're a man or woman, have authority over us and we're called to submit. So that's our timeless principle across generations and cultures. It's God-ordained. It's timeless. But as we're about to see, some cultural expressions that, uh, of that principle may change over time and across cultures. And here we go. Here's a cultural expression right here, verse 4, 5, and 6. Paul says, Every man who prays or prophesies 
with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So see, we've got head being used literally, but also metaphorically here now. So uh, a a dude's head uh, covered would dishonor his head, Jesus. A wife's head uncovered praying or prophesying would dishonor her head, her husband. Since it is the same as if her head was shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. All right, so head was the first key term that we already unpacked to understand this passage. And now we see that Paul's talking about some idea of a covering. So we've got the head covered, uncovered. We've got this covering thing going on. What's, what's a cover? What's he talking about? Well, you have three options again to choose from in this passage. Some people understand covering to be just hair itself, that God has given a woman longer hair for her covering. I think that's the weakest option, but it is an option. The second option is that Paul's talking a partic- about a particular hairstyle so that culturally there was a, a, a kind of a, a cultural norm, a hairstyle that would be worn to express femininity, and then there would be a distinct difference between the way a woman expressed that through a head covering and the way that a dude expressed that and the way that his hair was worn. That is a possibility. I also think that's valid, but a little bit weaker. I think the best one is the third, which is actually a, a, a real head covering, a piece of cloth that would be placed on a woman's head and culturally at the time maybe more understood as something that would cover the hair, but also somewhat of a veil, uh, somewhat of a veil over the face. I think that's the strongest option, but you do your own work and you'll see that those are generally the three options that uh, people are picking from here, okay? So I believe we're talking about an actual head covering or a veil, Now let's do, again, we need to do some historical work to understand what's going on here, right? Otherwise, we're going to jump to application that may not be a faithful expression of this principle in our culture at all. It might have the opposite effect, right? So in their day, in their city, men and women were expected to have obviously different head or hairstyles. Now, we we can somewhat relate to that. Things have changed somewhat, but we can still kind of relate to that. But here's where we stop relating, Women in their city in their day commonly kept their heads covered while in public. Very common. Head covered, hair covered, uh, most of the face covered. And not for Rona. See, we can, st- we can still relate to this, can't we? Fantastic. Um, uh, not for Rona. Uh, now, she would keep it covered, especially if she was married. It was definitely a sign that a woman was in a marriage relationship. Now, what you also need to understand on the other side of the coin culturally for women, long flowing uncovered hair could simply communicate that this woman is young, that she's single. And so it's communicating like an innocent availability, not, um, not, a, 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 not an availability that lacks virtue, right? Not sexually scandalous or anything like that, but just young, single, not yet married and available. It could mean that. Um, so a head covering in this culture for a woman was a likely sign that she was married, and so it was also a sign of submission for her. That it was this glad submission. She had a, a husband or a man in her life. She um, uh, she was in this relationship, and it was a sign. It was a sign that she was in in the relationship, and uh, a sign of submission to it. Now, in some circles, in absence of covering, and this really becomes relevant for our conversation here, in absence of a covering for a woman especially if her hair was down and flowing, could signal that the woman was advertising herself sexually. 
uh, either for income, either for income, or just that she was a young girl out for a good time, and she was happy for the attention, and she would be glad to go with uh, anyone who was uh, going to pursue her as she sent those signals out that she was uh, available or not. So particularly scandal- scandalous if it was a married woman and taking her covering off, because culturally, that's kind of what it communicated uh, when the hair was down and the, and the covering was off. So we can understand it this way. A head covering was a sign culturally of a virtuous expression of femininity. Uh, Culturally, we can boil it all down like this. It's how a woman dressed. Like it was a woman being a beautiful woman culturally in a virtuous way. That's what's going on. And so we would see then, if that's what this head covering is, it makes perfect sense now why Paul would say that a man praying or prophesying dishonors his head, Jesus, if he's rolling up in the public worship gathering with a covering on his head. He's essentially uh, blurring the gender distinction and dressing culturally like a woman would. Now, we're not tracking at all for us today with head coverings and hair because we would be okay culturally if somebody with longer hair, a dude, got up. Although in the military, I guess we're still kind of accustomed to shorter hair, right? But nonetheless, so maybe for us to understand... We should take hair out this morning. And let me just ask you, how would you feel if I got up to preach you this morning and instead of wearing jeans, I had on a, a skirt? How would you feel? Like, honestly. Some of you would get up and walk out. Most of you wouldn't be, you, you would not want to draw attention to yourself by doing that. But the entire time, like, what is, where did this church find this insane guy? Like, I'll never come back here. Um, you'd be thinking a lot of different things. You would not be thinking that it's okay, right? Culturally, we're conditioned this way, even though our culture's changed quite a bit over time. And so we would see then why it makes perfect sense that Paul would say that a woman praying or prophesying uncovered dishonors her head or her husband. Now that we understand what an uncovered head culturally would mean, especially with the hair down, we would understand that. So if a woman wasn't going to cover her head, Paul writes, she might as well shave it all off. And shaving it off for a woman culturally in that day was a sign of shame. It was a sign of shame. So what he's saying is what you're communicating with your body in a public worship gathering is so scandalous or so shameful, at least culturally, even if you don't mean it in your heart, the signal you're giving off is you're trying to draw attention to yourself or you're advertising yourself sexually or you refuse to submit to God's good creative design, any one of those things. So Paul's saying there's so much shame involved in that. You might as well just go all the way and shave your head so that what you're suggesting becomes clear to everybody that this is actually what you feel and and how you believe. Just put the symbol of shame, like just wear the t-shirt that says what you're doing and why you're doing it. So Paul says, shave it off, because that's what your head uncovered is signaling in, in public per their cultural norms, okay? So recap at this point, head coverings were a cultural sign then. It was femininity expressed. It was even modesty expressed in the sense that what I mean by that is it was a woman's way of um, signaling that she did not want undue attention especially in a public worship gathering, that she recognized that she was here. We're all here for Jesus to receive attention. And so it was kind of a woman's way in that day of dressing in a way that she would just fit in with everybody else and not stand out and not draw undue attention because she didn't want to take any of that attention away from what Jesus should be receiving. So it was an expression of virtue and submission to authority, her husband's, and culturally just a feminine expression, a woman being a woman. 
So verse 6 then gives us the one command in this passage where Paul just says, look, cover your head when you pray or prophesy. So Paul's just asking these young Christians, please return to cultural, culturally normal customs of feminine expression and of submission, out of submission to Jesus, right? Please do this out of submission to Jesus for the good of the family, but also for our reputation in the city and for the gospel's reputation. And because when we're here in a worship gathering, we're not here for ourselves, we're here for Jesus, okay? So that's what's going on. Now, why is this even an issue though, right? We don't, we don't know. The question's not in here. We don't, we don't know why this is an issue. We can speculate, and I think some of these speculations are fair. Here are a few examples. Where was the early church meeting? Where? In, in houses. Well, what do we do in our houses? We dress down. We wear less. We, we let our hair down. It's very informal with our families and very intimate and very personal. That changes a little bit for most of us. Not all of us. When, when company comes over, right? I guess depending on what part of the country you're from, um, I don't know, your backgrounds, like it changes a little bit for us. So think about it. If all of a sudden you're hosting this public gathering in your living room space, it could just be some of the sloppiness or messiness of kind of walking this out culturally like, all right, I know it's your living room, but we're going to have other people who are not, they're not related to you and we could have non-Christians coming into your living room as a part of our worship gathering. So we're going to do our best to show that we are. We care about submission. We care about cultural norms of modesty. And we care about uh, cultural norms of gender expression and all these things. It could be that. We don't know. Could be. What else could it be? Man, when, when Christianity blew up the known world, all of a sudden women were included in worship gatherings. Listen, the, the cultural norm in Corinth and other places was this, and here are some quotes from historians. It says, women were either excluded from public or private religious life or confined to its, express, uh, to its fringes. Another historian said, um, um, when it came to worship, pagan men, or men and women must occupy distinct places. I get internally frustrated when I hear that like the gospel oppresses women or Jesus uh, subverts women or, or holds them down. Everywhere the gospel has gone in every culture, the position of women is elevated and they are uh, seen to, be, uh, to, to have greater worth and to, to, to have uh, greater value and greater equality with men. And here's an example. Before Jesus, uh, you could not even worship together as a family because men would worship here and women, the men would be here and the women would be next door in our, in our kids' building. Uh, they weren't seen together. And so now they're wrestling with the complexity of bringing the genders together in a worship gathering and not only bringing them together, look, the women were given upfront roles. They were, they were allowed to get allowed. I don't like that word either. That's not, that's not helpful. Encouraged, needed, implored to be involved upfront, leading in prayer and uh, through this prophetic expression, which we'll unpack in the weeks to come and in other ways. So they're wrestling with all of this, uh, wrestling with all this. So we don't know, but it's still an issue. And so what we understand is that in some ways they were obscuring these gender differences and in other ways they were overemphasizing gender distinctions. They were in their kind of obscuring of these distinctions, they were dishonoring God and his good design. And through overemphasizing these distinctions, they were communicating that they were looking for glory which belongs to God alone. Now, Paul's not picking on the ladies in this passage, you got to know that, uh, the women who received this letter would, would have understood. They would not have felt put on the spot or shamed. And so we need to know that this morning. And this timeless principle, guys, cuts both 
ways, right? This timeless principle cuts both ways. So like, for example, fellas, fantastic that all week you did tries and buys. You skipped your legs, you skipped back day, you skipped chest day. You're just all about the guns, right? We'll put the gun show away though. Like at the public worship gathering, that's not for the display of your guns. Like fantastic, but save them for tomorrow when you work out with your, your guys again and you can compare bicep circumference then, right? But um, so the idea, the timeless principle cuts both ways. Like it's fantastic that your mom taught you, your dad taught you how to perform hygiene. It's good, men, that you don't show up to church like stinking and needing a shower and stuff. But you also don't have to walk in here like you just came out of the uh, Calvin Klein aisle up at, like you know, like got sprayed with every piece up there, right? It's great that she taught you how to dress, but you don't need to roll up to the public worship gathering like you're on the cover of GQ, uh, like you're on the hunt for attention or an available woman or you have something to advertise or display, right? Like you're, um, not, I guess that's not a reality for us because we all shop in the same aisles like right here. So <laughs> you're all good on that one. All I'm trying to say is Paul's not picking on women and it cuts both ways. It's not really about head coverings or a dress code. It's about the heart and the posture behind those things. And whatever was going on here, there's a sense in which these gender distinctions were being obscured, but maybe even overemphasized in that people were drawing undue attention to ourselves. And guys, we all have hearts that run that way, right? We all have hearts that run that way. So that's kind of what's going on. That's what's going on. Okay, now Paul shifts from culture and goes to creation. Check this out, verses 7 to 10. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, comma, my least favorite four words in this entire chapter, and because of the angels. I have no idea. I have, uh, that's not true. I have one idea, and I'm going to give it to you in a minute, but uh, let's unpack this in order. What Paul's doing now is anchoring the conversation back in God's creative design. Okay, that's what he's doing. Um, he's referencing, without, without naming the Bible verses, he'd be referencing the creation account in Genesis, we, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for us, where we see God's design for male leadership in the home, like in a marriage relationship, and we see the seeds of God's idea that we'll unpack throughout Scripture of qualified male leadership in the church as being a timeless principle. Okay, so this male leadership, uh, the sense of authority, God-given uh, authority in the life of the home and in the life of the church is a timeless principle which transcends time and culture. So Paul's referencing the Genesis creation account. And what he's saying is both man and women, woman were created in the image of God, right? He's not discounting. Uh, yeah, men were created in the image of God, but so were women. Like um, men, you bear that image and you have value and worth because of it. And ladies, so do you in the same amount and arguably, if not more than, well, that's not true. We, all, we, we bear it equally, right? The image of God, the imago Dei among us equally. But he's referring to order here. We both reflect his glory, but Adam was created first. And in being created first, God delegated to Adam a unique authority over creation that would be expressed in leadership um, as a husband and also collectively in community in the life of the church with qualified male leadership as our pastors or shepherds or elders, right? A gender distinction. And that 
Paul's pointing to creation to help us understand this creative pattern is meant to endure throughout time. So Adam was created, and then Eve was created, created from Adam. That's what Paul's alluding to. And she was also given authority over creation, but she's given something unique too. As his wife, she's given a complementary helping role alongside Adam's leadership. That's what Paul means when he says, for the glory of man. Now, as if all of this is not challenging enough for our 21st century minds to wrap our heads around, then you come to verse 10 and we see, because of the angels. Now, like I said, I don't know. Um, I didn't even feel like I spent adequate time in this passage this week for, for, the, for the other stuff. And then there's this, and I just had to tap out. Uh, there's a Jewish tradition that teaches that angels were the guardians of the creation order. And so some are suggesting that Paul was concerned to make sure that nothing in the worship service would offend them. Okay, good, good working. I don't know. You're going to have to do your own work on this one. I just got to confess that all week long, because we just kind of came out of Advent in December, the only thing that I could think of, and I know this is ludicrous, but I just kept thinking about it's a wonderful life and how an angel gets its wings. How does an angel get its wings? Huh? Bell. But it's not. Look at the Bible. It's head coverings. Every time a woman's mind is changed, she puts a head covering like an angel gets, right? Laughable. I know. It's just absurd. I'm not teaching that as any, right? I'm just trying to say, I don't know. So please do your work and then email me and let me know what this because of the angels thing uh, means. And then we come to verse 11 and 12. And I want to present this to you as exhibit A. Uh, what I said before, I told you this passage is not about the subordination of women. Here's exhibit A. Nevertheless, right? So Paul's made all these statements about God's creative design, gender distinctions, uh, a unique sense of leadership and uh, authority delegated to man in certain, certain environments, marriage for one for sure, and in the life of the church. And again, you're like, John, I don't see that. Where are you talking about that in the life of the church? If we had time, we would go to another letter like Timothy um, and later in Corinthians. And what we'll see is that um, by God's creative design, his desire is that humble, gospel-shaped men would express or steward this God-given um, authority to serve in the life of the church as its pastors, shepherds, and leaders. And he does not extend that to the women who are part of the family. Let me just say, too, like this, this idea of gospel authority. All we have to do is look at the life of Jesus to understand the nature of this authority. One, is not self-serving. And if that authority, if anybody ever invokes that authority for self-gain or to hold or oppress other people down, that is ungodly and demonic and anti-gospel. This type of authority that Paul is talking about is exhibited in the life of Jesus, who, though he was a king, set aside his crown came in the form of a servant, and here's where he proves it. He dies. He gives up his life for his wife. That's, what, that's the kind of life that this authority leads to. So it exists. God gives it to you, um, not for your own good, but so that you will pour yourself, your life out for God's fame and the good of other people. Okay, that's what he's talking about. So I told you this passage is not about the subordination of, of women, right? So here's exhibit A. Look what Paul does here. Men are not better or worse. Ladies, same, not better or worse. Different by God's good design, and that's for our good and for his fame. But look at what he does here. Both are essential. Both are dependent upon the other. We need each other. A healthy church is balanced between uh, kind of feminine expression and masculine expression coming together so that it is not a, a, a mas hyper-masculine church or a hyper-feminine church. Balanced. 
We need each other. And this design is from God and for our good. So as it relates to our public worship gatherings, uh, Paul is calling them to reflect this pattern that we see in creation, qualified men, husband, pastors, but not to the exclusion of women. So when the church family gathers, gender distinction, distinction should not be obscured. God gave the pattern, but they should not be overemphasized either, right? Balance. Now, growing up, I heard, I don't know if I say it anymore, maybe they do, but they, I would always hear that men would not, like surveys would say that men would not come to church because they felt like it was an environment for women, that it was this effeminate place that men didn't go. That's definitely true here in Japan. I don't know how true that is in the West still, but culturally in Japan, church is viewed very much as a space for women, and masculine men don't participate in that space. And so the pendulum swing for that, like the overreaction for that, I remember this distinctly, was like this push to have these hyper-masculine expressions of church, where sometimes they were just exclusively for dudes, like women weren't welcome. But even if they weren't, it was communicated that women weren't valued. Um, and so there was almost like a uniform of the day, like it was the wash jeans and the boots and the Texas buckle and the flannel, not picking on anybody that's dressed that way or from Texas, but just kind of stereotypical sawdust on the floor. What's that restaurant where you shell peanuts and just throw them down? What's the steakhouse? That place. Uh, axe throwing is popular now. So instead of childcare, like we do the axe throwing thing, the preaching is angry and yelling. The music is masculine, whatever that means. Like just all around creating this environment that is hyper masculine. Guys, that's just as anti-gospel as trying to create a culture or an environment that is, that is uh, hyper uh, effeminine. It's wrong. It's, it's, it, it stands in contrast to God's complementary creative pattern. And so while we need qualified men laying down their lives to lead us as pastors and shepherds, Paul is so clearly speaking into this culture that devalued women and excluded them and says, looks them in the eye and says, women will be featured prominently in the public expression of our worship gatherings and there will be balance. And where it used to just be men up front, there will be women now using their God-given gifts for the family's good and for his fame, leading in prayer and giving a prophetic word that women's voices are essential. And now Paul transitions. He's kind of talked from culture and then creation and now custom. I got to start wrapping this up. I'm sorry. I skipped a week, so I have. I'm sorry. Next week, I'll be regulated back. Verses 13 and 14. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a, it is a dis disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. People who feel that the hair is the covering kind of latch on to that, that last piece there. This is Paul's way of recapping the argument. He's just teeing up an easy answer. He expects a no answer here. He expects for them to say, no, Paul, you're right. Nature, as we understand it culturally, uh, you're right about the hair thing. Now, Again, that's different by culture, right? So for them, culturally, nature had, had taught them that. Uh, men, short hair, women, long hair. But is that really true from nature? No. If, if Dudes, if you grew your hair out and never cut it, it would come to the same length as your, as your wives, right? Same. Like, we all be a bunch of just really hairy people, long hair. And some of you dudes, deep down, you even believe that your hair is better than or superior to your wives, right? So you've got that going on, too. That's part of the conversation. So it's not hair for us in our culture, 
Um, but again, nature has taught us culturally. Uh, again, I'd refer back to what I did before. Maybe we could insert a dress here. If I, if I showed up here in a dress or a skirt to preach, like nature has taught us and we, we understand culturally that that would be a blurring of God's intended expression of this gender distinction, right? We could, we could substitute that way. And so what Paul's saying is this, family, we should give ourselves to embracing and celebrating God's good design for the complementary roles of women and men. We should celebrate the distinction between the genders. Both of them should be on display in our public worship gatherings. We should not be embarrassed by this conversation about gender distinction, even though we're in a culture that just wants to obliterate all the distinctions. Can I get an amen? And an A-woman. Ah, see, we got that. Don't be embarrassed. This design is for God's fame and for our good. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be a jerk in the conversation. Let's be gentle and winsome and loving and kind. Let's model with humility. But let's not be embarrassed. This is for our good. We, we flourish when we submit to God's good design. So we don't obscure, but we also don't overemphasize. And then Paul finishes in verse 16. I'm going to read from the NIV. I think it's a little stronger than the ESV here. Uh, he says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, guys, you got to understand, this is the practice in all of the churches. We submit to this as God's good design for us. He says, we have no other practice. We gladly submit, nor do the, any of the other churches of God. We joyfully submit to Jesus, trusting his design is good. Healthy churches embrace this design for Jesus' fame and for our flourishing. Um, there's no other practice. So when it comes to confession, maybe we can begin asking ourselves questions like this. Is there any way in which I or we obscure these gender distinctions by rejecting this pattern that God has given to us in creation? Do we chafe against this? Or to use Paul's word, are we contentious about this? Um, maybe we could ask, are my views of gender influenced more by the culture than they are by God's creative design. That's possible. It's possible that I obscure by my desire to blur the distinctions, right? I, I just want it to be, I can't believe it's equal across the board until we've eliminated all distinction. There's also another extreme where we could reject this or be contentious about this by uh, rejecting this kind of an explanation or this kind of a passage as what we would say culturally mansplaining, right? We would attribute it to mansplaining or sexism or sexism light or chauvinism. That would be another way that we could reject. Some of us overemphasize, right? We've already kind of covered the ways we personally overemphasize these distinctions by leveraging the distinctions for our good, by drawing attention to ourselves. Again, cutting both ways, not picking on women. That's true of men, true of women, right? That'd be one way. But what about church culture? I don't know about all of you, but I grew up in a church culture that did not value the presence of women or the contributions of women in a public worship gathering, and that's ungodly. It's anti-gospel. And the view in those churches was we needed women as a church because we needed volunteers in the nursery. We had lots of childcare positions to be filled. That's ungodly and anti-gospel. Ladies, you belong in here just as much as you belong next door with babies cradled in your arms. Let me say it to you dudes. 
Men, you belong next door cradling babies in your arm just as much as you belong in here and just as much as the ladies. Why do the ladies always carry the brunt of that work? That's ungodly. If we actually believed what God said about the authority given to us as men to pour ourselves out for the good of a community, you know what the imbalance would be? We would have more men than women serving next door. So we don't believe this until that's true of our culture. Right? We don't believe that women have a valuable contribution up front publicly until we have more men, we, until EJ has a problem because she has too many dudes trying to get on the nursery roster. That's what it would look like. That, look, that's what it looks like, guys. That's what it looks like. Women, God, have, God has given you gifts. We need your gifts, and we need your voice. And I will confess as a pastor, I have done an a, a weak and an imperfect, insufficient job of making sure that our upfront voices are balanced between men and women. And I am working to lead in that direction. So I just want to say this to you publicly. If you have a desire to lead us in prayer, if you have a desire to lead from Scripture, read from Scripture, if you have a desire to share a word with us, please tell me what you think that is. Also, once a month, we feature stories from our family where you can share what God has been doing in your life, what he's laid on your heart, your redemptive story. Women, I want you telling your stories as a part of our public worship gatherings. You and your voice belong in this space. And I belong out of this space. Holy cow. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it right here. This is not a dress code. This passage is not about mandating head coverings, though if you come to a different conclusion, and ladies, when you pray or read scripture and you are convicted that you should wear a head covering, I will support you and you will not be excluded here. I'll even provide the head covering for you so that you can contribute publicly, okay? I will love you in that way. So if that's your conviction, fantastic. No disrespect, uh, you will be supported. This passage is about becoming who we are as we live in glad submission to Jesus' authority. We neither obscure nor overemphasize gender differences in our public worship gatherings. Guys, these are the timeless principles that govern our cultural practices and expressions. Our worship gatherings are for God's glory, so the gun show goes away. It doesn't belong here. Uh, we do not introduce intentional distraction based upon the way we dress or groom, right? We're here to focus on Christ, and we don't distract from that. It's men and women. Jesus gets the attention. This is not Tinder. Like, we're not, this is not our dating platform right here. Worship gatherings feature women and men, and we've got to have a commitment to more fully integrate women into our liturgical practices as a church family. Guys, our gender distinctions are good, God-given. We celebrate them, but we don't overemphasize them either. There's more I want to say, but I need to stop. Um, John is going to come and uh, lead us in, in a confession. Whatever you feel uh, you need to confess before God, and he'll lead us in a, in a family uh, confession.